Hello and welcome to the Brexit Central podcast. Joining me today is Dan Hannan, who has been an MEP since 1999 for the southeast of England. Welcome. Thank you. Uh, and we're going to be talking a little bit about um, national sovereignty and about Brexit. Um, so can I just start by saying briefly, what is Brexit? I think it's about fundamentally self-government. It's about being able to hire and fire the people who pass our laws. And about democracy working within a unit where people feel that they have a sense of common identity, common allegiance. So democracy works within a nation because, you know, if my party loses the election, I recognise the results. I don't, you know, uh, immediately try and secede. If, if, if I'm asked to obey a stupid law, but it was a correctly passed law, I still feel obliged to obey. I, I feel obliged to pass tax, to, to pay taxes to support people I've never met, because we were connected to each other within a, in a nation. And that's what a, a democratic nation-state is. The problem with the EU is that it has created all of the institutions of statehood, president, parliament, currency, a legal system, a supreme court, external borders, a national anthem, a flag, all of that, without any sustaining sense of common identity. Uh, so you have a state without a nation, and ultimately that was always the, the objection to it. So do you believe it's important that it's democratic as well? Well, it can't be, because democracy isn't just a periodic right to put a cross on a bit of paper. Democracy also depends on a certain relationship between government and government. Uh, you have a sense of loyalty, of, of shared affinity in Sweden or Portugal or Britain. But nobody ever really says, I'm a European in the way that they might say, I'm a Swede or I'm a Portuguese. And so when you have, as we're about to have, European elections, you don't find that they are happening in a context of a European public opinion or recognised pan-European political leaders. Uh, what you have, of course, is 28 separate national campaigns because people's primary loyalty is at national level. And so there's, there's a sort of Potemkin quality. There's something fake about the whole idea. You have these political parties sitting there. You have the pretense that there was a some kind of pan-European democratic process. But honestly, hand on heart, can you imagine anybody saying, well, you know, I was going to vote for Weber, but I reckon that Verhofstadt edged it in the second debate. I mean, it, it's just a nonsense. On your Twitter bio, you call yourself an old Whig. Mm. What does that mean? Yeah, it's what, uh, it's what Hayek called himself. It's what Edmund Burke called himself. Uh, it's what Thomas Jefferson called himself. I mean, for me, it is fundamentally about the dispersal of power and about the constraint of government. Uh, if you you have big citizens and small states, uh, then happiness flourishes. Uh, and we should be very proud, we who speak this language of the tradition that we gave to the world, which, which elevated the individual above the collective and which elevated the rules above the rulers, which gave the world the rule of law. And for me, uh, the most important principles of a free government are those two, that, that uh, we're all individual, we shouldn't be defined by birth or caste or tradition or colour, and that governments shouldn't be able to make up the rules as they go along. You know, and, and I kind of objected to, to the European project slightly on both grounds. There are worse offenders out there in the world. I mean, it's not as bad as, you know, communist China or somewhere. But uh, I never really felt that it was 
congruent with the traditions of, of British freedom. But do you believe it could be? I mean, if we had a European Union that did give um, stronger individual liberties to its citizens than mm. the British government, if it was a better liberal democracy than the United Kingdom, and obviously you said mm. that's not it doesn't, it doesn't give liberties, right? I mean, liberties are not given; liberties sure. are taken. But you could certainly imagine a different kind of construction where Europe, if you like, stopped at the borders, where it didn't involve itself in behind border issues, where it restricted itself to doing things when nations have to act collectively because they can't act singly. So, you know, uh, reduction of pollution, uh, some elements of broadcasting and aviation, uh, obviously removal of trade barriers. If that's all it had been, we'd have had no argument, we'd have had no referendum. Who would have been against that? The problem was that, of course, it, it, it wanted to be a state. And in wanting to turn itself into a country called Europe, it couldn't help but assert the coercive force of the state vis-a-vis -vis the citizen. That's what states do. If um, Jeremy Corbyn is elected as the Prime Minister, we'll have a party whose leader is far on the left of politics, we'll have a Chancellor who's called himself a Marxist openly, and we will have a real restriction in freedoms. Do you not imagine in that sense that the treaties of the European Union will be a, a kind of will be helpful to us. So this it's, a, it's an argument that has been made down the years and Tony Benn came up with a very good answer to it when he said I'd rather have a bad parliament than a good king because if you have a parliament that is doing things that you disagree with you can at least change it whereas if you have a king who happens to be doing what you like today, he may be doing the opposite tomorrow and you will have no ability to do anything about it. And that was really Tony Benn's fundamental democratic objection to the European project. I think, by the way, it's true that the Corbyn government, a Corbyn government, would be constrained by EU membership, particularly in the fields of, of state aid and competition law. That's one of the reasons he, he doesn't like it. Uh, but I would rather live in a country where I'm sometimes on the losing end of a ballot. I'd rather live in a democracy where sometimes the other side wins than live in a country where people are not trusted to make the decision at all because the parameters are set by people that we can't vote for. Would you have supported the American Revolution? Yes. I think there was a, insofar as historians can measure this, public opinion in Great Britain and in the 13 colonies was quite similar in the 1770s. So there was maybe 25 to 30 percent of the population on both sides of the Atlantic that was broadly Tory and pro-King. And the rest in varying shades were sympathetic to the grievances of the colonists. Uh, the difference is that we had a much more restricted franchise in Great Britain. So it's harder to measure that in Britain. You, you can do it, though, by looking at things like circulation of newspapers which took one line or the other in their editorials or uh, petitions for conciliation or coercion or whatever. But the, the, the idea that, you know, this was a war between two entities is, is bad history. I mean, it was a civil war within a single polity, and I think without question the the Patriot side or the Whig side was the more popular and one of the reasons why the war was so if you like feebly prosecuted by the uh, official army is that none of the generals in charge really believed in it either or certainly not to the extent of carrying out the kind of coercive policies that would have been needed to have averted it. So on what basis would you have supported that? Then? 
Well, basic old Whig principles. Uh, the government was making up the rules as it went along. It was awarding itself powers that went beyond the bounds of the, the Constitution. It was tilting the balance away from Parliament and towards the monarchy. Um, what today we would call the Quango state, right? Because it obviously wasn't the king personally making all these decisions, it was all the people that he appointed. But the, the central point was that they were not vulnerable to public opinion. Uh, and actually, you know, as it worked out, uh, obviously it created a successful republic in the, in the United States, but it was an enormously good and refreshing thing to happen to Britain. It, it, it brought a big political shake-up. Uh, it brought Pitt into power. There was a, a sense that we needed to do things better. Um, instead of this constant wearing need to have troops in North America, we were freed up to defeat the Bourbons and create the Anglosphere world that has lasted to this day. So if the, um, if the British government had been acting within the rules of law and if they hadn't been acting arbitrarily, would it have been legitimate to try and cede from the United Kingdom? Yes, I mean, I, I think in general, anyone has the right to say we're a separate country. Uh, and, you know, I, 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 that's not to say they should always exercise that right. But if the people of Cornwall or the Isle of Wight or whatever felt for whatever reason that they, they would be better off as a, a separate entity, then you know, it's never completely straightforward. There are historic claims to coastlines and stuff, but there should be a general presumption in favour of allowing uh, countries to break into smaller and smaller units if they wish. And I have to say that's been the general trend in the world in you know over the last hundred years or so. I mean, when the when the European Union was being established in the 50s, there were 80 states on Earth. Now there are 200. And, and that move towards more and smaller political entities has generally gone hand in hand with a move towards more prosperity and more democracy. Uh, of course, the, the outlier here is the European Union, which is, of course, going in the opposite direction. So, um, so even though it's done in a way, uh, even though seeding is done, the mechanism by which it's done breaks the law, it's still legitimate to do so. I mean, I, I, I think in general, our presumption should be in favour of self-determination, right? It, it, it's difficult to lay down axioms here because every case is, is unique. But, you know, if you look at most of the conflicts in the world today, they tend to be because people have been conscripted into a state to which they feel no allegiance whether they're Kurds or whether they're, you know, uh, Bosnian Serbs or whether they're Palestinians or whether they're, you know, people uh, on various islands of the Philippines or Indonesia or whatever. And that's not to say that all you need is a flag and an independence movement and the whole world should immediately recognise you. Plainly there are, there's a, a process to go through. And, and very often it turns out that when people are given a, a, a free and fair vote, they, they actually don't follow through with it. There's a silent majority against it. Uh, but at the moment, a lot of global policy is based around doing the opposite. Right? So if you look at the role of the EU and the international community in Bosnia, in Kosovo, it's deliberately based around creating a multi-ethnic state as a good thing in itself. Right? The, 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 there isn't any 
overwhelming reason why you couldn't turn the de facto border in Kosovo into the de jure border, have a little land swap and say this bit is now Serbia proper, this bit is, is either independent or Albania proper, be much closer to what people on the ground want, and it would be a compromise that both sides could live with. But it violates the ruling intellectual foundation of the European project, which is that the nation state is a bad idea. It's, it's passe and, and aggressive and, and all the rest of it. So our inclination should be towards maximum self-determination, whereas at the moment, internationally, it's the opposite. Iran, Syria, wherever we are, we shy away from saying, look, why not look at a, uh, an orderly partition as a way of creating a stable new situation. Um, you're standing again in the European elections, and uh, you're standing on a conservative ticket. Why should people vote for you since your party has so disastrously handled Brexit? Mm. Well, who else is actually going to deliver it? We need to ask that question. Who else is going to deliver withdrawal from the European Union in an orderly, timely and cordial way? Because right? uh, I, I refuse to believe that every Brexiteer is an angry sort of Trumpian who just wants to, to register a point of view. There's no need to send a message here, right? The, the message was sent on the 23rd of June 2016. More people voted to leave than ever vote, have ever voted for anything. So we don't need to kind of peer into the entrails and try and discern what the British people really think. We know that. The problem is not that we didn't get the message. The problem is we didn't get the votes. We didn't get the numbers. And I know that there is a view out there that, you know, somehow there's been a, a sort of secret government conspiracy not to deliver. But it's really not true. I mean, it's not that the government has been secretly trying to frustrate Brexit. It's that all the opposition parties, all the other parties except the DUP, have been openly trying to stop Brexit. In fairness, the SNP and the Lib Dems fought the 2017 election promising to do that. And so, you know, they, they both lost ground in consequence, but at least they, they were telling the truth. Labour pretended in 2017 that they would accept the result and, and have now not done so. In the end, we need to have a House of Commons that is serious about delivering and is therefore prepared to walk away with no deal if an acceptable deal isn't put on the table. And I, I, I mean, you can't get away from the reality. There are only two people who are going to be negotiating that. One is whoever takes over as Tory leader from Theresa May, and the other is Jeremy Corbyn, and that's the choice we've got to make. So you're not blaming this on the Chequers proposals, which um, ended up being the withdrawal agreement. You're not saying mm. that was the issue. That was why um, a lot of Tory, mm. Tory MPs rebelled against it. That's why the DUP weren't on board. Uh, actually, uh, to, to be honest, the most objectionable thing was not Chequers, it was the backstop. But... Uh, but the fundamental weakness here is that the House of Commons and the House of Lords have been saying quite openly to Brussels, no conspiracy here, we will not allow no deal. We will not allow Britain to leave without your permission on terms that you have expressly approved. And that's been happening since the 2017 election. So all the real nasties, the idea of, of having to stay in the customs union, the idea of the regulatory annexation of, of Northern Ireland, none of that was on the table in 2016. Brussels only started asking for those things after the 2017 election, because they could see that Britain was saying, look, we're either going to stay in altogether or accept whatever vindictive terms you put in front of us. Well, once you have a negotiating partner who is adopting that line, of course you're going to start making frivolous and, and ridiculous claims as, as they've done. Uh, that problem isn't going to go away until there's an election and a different majority in the House of Commons. And I think it's critical, therefore, to have a Conservative leader who's capable of delivering such a majority. 
you seem to be shying away from responsibility on um, the Prime Minister and her team mm. and just putting it down to the failure of the election. But surely, I mean, the ERG were voting in support of the Prime Minister. They were her biggest mm. fans. Um, while she was advocating the kind of Lancaster House vision of Brexit, <laughs> of let's take back control, laws, money, borders. Yeah. No deal's better than a bad deal. As soon as she brought forward checkers, as soon as she brought forward the withdrawal agreement, mm. that's when you got resignations, that's when you got the ERG turned against her instead of being her, her biggest supporters. Sure. How can oh, you, no, I'm you not, not blaming the Prime Minister? I, oh, I do. I, th- I, think she, I, think she's, uh, I think she's played things very badly, very ineptly. Uh, I think she made a series of errors, uh, of which the most egregious was accepting the backstop. I mean, there was a, a fascinating account on the EU uh, version of Politico of the whole process, where they were discussing, describing the Irish and, and European officials kind of whooping and high-fiving in, in disbelief when she agreed to that. So, no, no, definitely she has made a, a mess of the, of the talks. And somebody with a bit more charisma and a bit more warmth would have probably been able to build more coalitions at home as well as uh, as cajole EU leaders a bit more effectively. Fundamentally, though, what changed was the 2017 election. So the reason why she retreated from the Lancaster House position to her current position is because Parliament was making it very clear that they were not prepared to go away with no deal, and that cut away any negotiating strength she had. so I, I, and I'm, I'm saying this not in order to try and suck up to Mrs. Mayor. You know, I, I think the quicker she goes, the better. I think, uh, her removal is the first step towards a, a Tory recovery. I'm, I'm saying it because we we shouldn't shy away from the fact that whoever takes over, in the end, we are probably heading towards an election in which whoever is the Tory leader will be arguing that we need to have a majority in Parliament that is prepared to walk away if no good terms are on offer. And if they win on that basis, then I think things will look very different. I think if... And it was very striking that as we approached the March 29th deadline, when for the first time in a thousand days of talks, when for the first time the EU thought that there might be no deal, they immediately rushed forward with an extension. It makes you ask... How would they have reacted if they'd, if they'd thought at any point in the previous thousand days that we were really prepared to walk away? You know, My guess is that the moment the EU genuinely believes that Britain is prepared to walk away with no deal, we will get quite a good deal. And you're happy to, you'd be happy to walk away, would you? Not, not just as a, a negotiating tactic, you'd be happy to leave without a deal? It's not my preferred outcome, no. I mean, my preferred outcome is to get a deal. And... Uh, and, and a deal that is as comprehensive as possible. I mean, I want to have a good, friendly, close relationship with our European neighbours. I want it to be based on, of course, close trade and economic links, and but also on diplomatic and military and intelligence links and so on. Uh, that should be an uncontroversial thing to say. I mean, of course you want to have the friendliest possible relations with your with your neighbour. I mean, one of the one of the parallels that I used during and after the campaign was when people talk about the Canada model. I said, well, never mind Canada's relations with the EU. How about Canada's relations with the US as a model? You know, Canada has on its doorstep a country with about ten times its population, which is a, a federal republic. Uh, it's not part of that union, but it has about as close a relationship with it as you can have while being a sovereign country. And, uh, you know, but no, nobody, nobody would suggest for a second that Canada isn't an independent state. So, so Britain should have very, very friendly relations, very close institutional links with the EU, while being sovereign and while making its own law. That's not, that shouldn't be a difficult position. Um, 
I mean, I want to, I want to weep at, at the missed opportunities of the last three years. There were so many ways in which we could have gone for a deal like that. And through a combination of tactical blunders and stubbornness from our side, uh, and then loss of the parliamentary majority, we, we squandered those opportunities. You're a big advocate of um, free trade, and you set up the mm. uh, initiative of free trade. Yeah. Um, so you believe in a world where there are as few tariffs as possible, where the government doesn't curtail um, imports into the UK as much as possible. Are, are there any kind of tensions between the sovereignty of the nation state and that kind of position? No, I don't think so. I mean, I. I How about I, Huawei? Well, uh, I mean, first of all, is there a tension between sovereignty? In theory, of course, I support the right of any government to protect uh, its market if that's what it wants to do, but it is always a, the wrong decision. So I would never, you know, although they have the right, I think they'd be idiots to exercise that right. In a case like Huawei, um, I can remember a public meeting in the mid-80s when the Falklands War was not that long, uh, 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 not that distant in memory. And we were in the middle of, of a mass privatisation programme here. We were, we were privatising the electricity grid and British gas and so on, telecoms. And Enoch Powell was speaking at a public meeting and he was asked, Mr Powell, you're a great believer in national sovereignty. Don't you feel uncomfortable about companies where the French state has a controlling share buying up big chunks of Britain's energy grid? And he said, well, we built all the railways in Argentina and a fat lot of use that was to us in the recent war. That's just not how investment works, right? Now, of course you need to have uh, controls in place to prevent espionage and, and to prevent sabotage and trapdoors and all the rest of it. But I have a lot of confidence in our intelligence agencies. And if they, this is what it comes down, if they say we are quite happy to have infrastructure built by the Chinese in the following areas, we exclude these because we think they're sensitive, but in these there isn't any threat, so let them do the non-sensitive stuff. I really don't see that there should be an argument against doing that uh, on its own merits. And <clears throat> I mean, I'm, I'm deeply critical of the Chinese government, much more than a lot of, of conservatives are, but I, I don't believe that the correct way to express your hostility to another government is by restricting trade and investment. On the contrary, that always hurts the wrong people and shores up the regime. You, you want to engage as much as possible as a route to reforming the other government. But surely Huawei is not the kind of, um, it's not a benign corporation. Surely the, the Chinese version of, version of capitalism is not the same as the kind you're advocating. Surely it's mm. more similar to the East India Company than it is of, I don't know. But that's their problem, right? I mean, if, if as a result of them being a, uh, a quasi-governmental, you know, not wholly independent firm, they are making uh, artificially competitive offers to us, that's effectively a subsidy from the Chinese taxpayer to the British consumer. Right. But, <laughs> but the East India Company ended up ruling mm. the whole of India. Yeah, I mean, but, but I think we've... we've I don't know because I'm, and neither do you and neither does anyone listening. I mean, we're not spooks. We haven't gone over this in technical detail. But my my understanding of what GCHQ and the other people have said, I can't see how we'd have reached this decision otherwise, is that they are satisfied that there isn't a, a technical threat 
in the areas where uh, they're allowing the bid to go ahead. Because of course Huawei is, is not being given unrestricted uh, the power to bid where it likes. Um, I, I think there are some real issues which I'd be insisting on if I were a minister on interoperability. It's really important that uh, different operators should be able to work on each other's infrastructure. I just think that's a basic market consideration. But I think China has, you don't need to infer a more sinister motive than that they want to do business with us here. I know people say, well, China uses trade deals as a geopolitical instrument and, and they've been building up these bases in the Indian Ocean and, and leaning on the governments of, of Sri Lanka and Burma and so on. Sure, but we're not Sri Lanka, we're not Burma, we are not a poor, needy country dependent on Chinese largesse. We're the fifth biggest economy in the world. And I think it's pretty clear what the Chinese want to get out of us. They want economic growth. They need to grow at 6% a year. They therefore need a partner who is in favour of free trade, in favour of keeping the sea lanes open. Obviously they haven't got that in Brussels, now they haven't got it in Washington, quite the contrary, so they're looking for someone uh, who will work with them on optimising free trade. And I think the reason that they want to put the infrastructure in here and are giving us a very good price is because they can then say to every other country in the world, to every South American country, every, look, look, the Brits are happy for us to do this. So we, we don't need to, to, to seek some uh, deeper motive than that. Now, it's probably right, probably fair to say, that some policymakers in Beijing see it as a bonus that they, they would be detaching us from Trump on the issue of trade. To be honest, we ought to be detached from Trump on the issue of trade. He's wrong on the issue of trade. And we can still be America's closest ally while differing from him on this issue where he is an outlier and is wrong. So if we were a smaller nation, if we were closer to China, you'd probably be a bit more nervous about accepting... Well, I'd say read the small print, right? Because, I mean, if, you are, if you're the Maldives or whatever, you haven't got intelligence agencies of the same quality as ours. You can't be as certain about the... The technical materials, uh, and you need to be very, very careful about things that come with, you know, require uh, requests for military bases or whatever. But that—that's not what we're being asked for. That's not a comparable situation for us. So just finally, um, if you had been in charge of Brexit, if you were Prime Minister, what was the mechanism by which you would have tried to leave? Would it have been the Article 50 route? I wouldn't have triggered Article 50 until we had all of our contingency preparations in place. And I, I assumed when Article 50 was triggered that we had done that. You know, I thought, oh, wow, you know, the Foreign Office and the, the rest of the government have been way ahead of where I thought they would have been. I, who, you know, who knew they were that efficient? It, it just was incredible when I discovered that we hadn't, that we'd done that simply because the Prime Minister, if, if Tim Shipman's book is to be believed, because the Prime Minister wanted something to say at a party conference speech. So there's nothing wrong with Article 50 as a mechanism, provided that you, you know, that you, you don't trigger it until you're ready. Uh, I would have, I would have taken this gradually, though. I'd have said, look, what are the, what are the important things that we need to get back? Legal sovereignty, right? So that UK law is preeminent on our own soil, so that it, it, it isn't uh, superseded by EU law. The ability to do our own trade deals, and then opting out of some of the big ticket policies like uh, agriculture and fisheries and uh, culture and so on, defense, whatever. Kind of pre-Maastricht type deal, if you like. Uh, and I think that was on offer. If we'd gone for a, a Swiss type arrangement, a EFTA type deal, we'd have done that. And then, you know, the nature of EFTA would have changed. Once we were in it, the balance would have been different. Uh, you know, all sorts of new 
uh, arrangements may have come about between the, the Federalist countries and the, the ones that just wanted free trade. My worry is that by grabbing for everything, some of my fellow leavers will end up with nothing. That they overreached, they wanted every, they were not prepared to settle for any compromises. And there is now a danger of the whole thing slipping through our fingers. And, you know, I, I fear that we're fairly close to a, the possibility of a Corbyn-led government. I think if that happens, probably Brexit will be halted. But frankly, that would be the least of our problems. I mean, we will have in office for the first time somebody who regrets the outcome of the Cold War and, and, and that's a, a, a literal statement not a, not a figure of speech and uh, we've not known that before in Britain Dan Hannon thank you very much thank you I'm David Scullin and you're listening to the Brexit Central podcast you can subscribe on SoundCloud and iTunes and you can subscribe to our daily Brexit briefing at brexitcentral.com forward slash subscribe